Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with 371 trifix, and ENTP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Welcome, everyone. We are back this week with our guest, Belinda Gore, who was here in the fall. And it was such an exciting interview for me because I have this deep knowing that object relations are really important to understand if you want to use the Enneagram in any meaningful way. So we know that the Enneagram has been gaining in popularity and that many people are using it in a wide variety of ways that those of us that are really committed to deep spiritual and psychological growth have some concerns over because we know that some people are teaching it without the depth and understanding that is important to so many of us. And that's why after that interview, I was so excited to say, Belinda, like we, we just, there's so much more I want to talk about. And I got so excited to realize that you actually are teaching a class on object relations that will start on February 24th. And it's on Fridays at 1130 Central. And it's a 90 minute, seven week series that if you enjoy, you then have the opportunity to sign up for your second series, which actually gives you tools and techniques for working with object relations once you understand them. And I have the ability to work with them because you're seeing it pop up inside yourself. So um, I'm really happy you're here. I'm hoping that our listeners sign up for your class and I'm going to do everything in my power to try to work my schedule around doing this because I just know, like my intuition is telling me that I have to just continue revisiting this and working with it and finding it inside of myself and just naming that, you know, we're both threes, we're both attachment types. And so obviously the attachment object relations are most important for us, but we all have frustration and rejection um, inside of us. So working with that is just as important. So regardless of what your Enneatype is, we know we are not our type. We are not our object relations. And these, these are the things we have to release ourselves from. So once again, I said too much before even allowing you to talk, but that's kind of why I'm here and why I'm so happy I'm having you back. And I want to let you respond. And I'm hoping that you will tell us, when did you realize object relations was so important? And, you know, I know that Russ brought you into our shift program to specifically teach us object relations. Mm -hmm. And I know that he highlighted each teacher that he believes is sort of a guru in this, you know spectrum of the field. And that's how we've come to know you. And even though obviously, you know, a lot about many things around the Enneagram and many other psychological tools and structures, but we kind of know you as this being your wheelhouse. How did that happen? And how did this call you in? And thanks for being here again. (laughs) Thank you. I glimpsed object relations from Don and Russ, probably in the mid 90s. And uh, when I was still training with them, and frankly, it sort of went over my head, passed me by. Um, In uh, 2006, I became involved with the Diamond Approach work, and Hamid Ali and my teacher, Sandra Maitri, 
talk about object relations a lot, although for me there wasn't enough background, and it wasn't linked with the Enneagram, which is what Don and Russ had done previously, a, a decade before. One of my good friends and colleagues, Diana Redmond, said, Belinda, I don't think I quite understand object relations. And because I'm a three and a social three, I learn best when I try to organize something to teach it, because it requires me to do more than just read. I have to conceptualize clearly enough to be able to convey the idea to someone else. So I started teaching probably eight or nine years ago, and I've learned so much ever since. I think about it as I've taken the class all these different times, and we do offer um, to our alums from the Object Relations course for half price, you can go back and repeat a class that you've had. And I have people who've taken part one and part two three or four times because they say, and I understand this, like it's such a shift in perception that it takes a while to really integrate what the implications are. And so understanding it and then learning to recognize the play of object relation patterns in our everyday life, and once recognizing them, understanding what to do in order to not be driven by those almost compulsive patterns, it's a lot. And so part one is laying the foundation. That's what we'll be doing. That's awesome. I love that. And, you know, there's something about point three as an attachment type that you just landed on for me because I love teaching too. And one of the reasons why I love Myers-Briggs as well as the Enneagram is that when I understand somebody's cognitive processes, I can figure out how to teach them more effectively when mm -hmm. I understand how their brain works and what yes. it is they might be attending to. Am I remembering your ENFP? I am. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And I'm ENTP. So yes. it's interesting. We're very similar in how we teach. I tend to use a lot of maps. Like this is why I collect all these typologies because introverted thinking is my parent function. So mm -hmm. I love giving people maps and structures and, you know, sort of a very head-centered approach to things because right. that's how my brain works. And I'm just curious because I really want to understand what's your understanding of introverted feeling and how does that help mm -hmm. you to be a good teacher? I'm attuned to how people are responding to the material. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm good at creating exercises so that people have an experiential learning, uh, a direct experience from themselves, a felt experience of the material. So I use some maps, but I always want to invite people to have the experience and then go into a breakout room with one or two other people to really integrate the personalized understanding. Mm -hmm. of whatever the teaching focus just yeah, was. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. And, you know, as listeners know, 
I'm learning both systems all the time. I'm constantly just shifting back and forth into an Enneagram structure and a mm-hmm. Jungian psychology um, structure. Yes. And my brain is mapping a ton of connections. And yes. really, I'm doing this because I love teaching too. And yes. what I love doing is actually helping individuals to identify with where is my block and what do I need to heal or understand or embody in order to get a different outcome in my life. I think we're all doing this for similar reasons. It's like we're doing the same thing, but why and how we're doing it is going to have a slightly Mm. different flavor based on our own life experiences Mm. and how we identify and how we're engaging. But I think there's more in common with what we do. But this is why it's wonderful. There's so many teachers, because when you find one that is really unlocking things for you, that's such a gift. Right. And I think the why is even more common than the how. Mm -hmm. To my mind, the why is that all of us have an instinct for what's sometimes called enlightenment, Mm -hmm. that, that that enlightenment drive pulls us. And so the instincts for self-preservation, social and sexual, are how do we, how does this organism survive in the world? Mm-hmm. That, that's the instinctual energy in the belly center. Mm-hmm. But we also have this pull toward understanding, self-awareness, uh, the capacity for change, which is stronger in some people than others. Mm-hmm. And then how we respond to that pull or that drive is variable depending on our structures and all the things that you're mentioning about how we're put together and what's most accessible within each of us. Yeah. And why some of us are more connected to that enlightenment drive than others, that's just mystery, right? I haven't come across mm-hmm. anything that explains that, have you? No, I I think that we come in with that, mm-hmm. and it's different for different people depending on where they are yeah. in their overall spiritual journey. Yeah, like when I hear people talk about a young soul versus an old soul or something like mm-hmm. that, I think of old souls as people who are more connected to the Enlightenment journey, or it seems like yes. they've been working it for longer than other people. Like some people yes. are just waking up, and some people have been awake for a while and have been working on stuff and may have, you know, gotten a little further down the path. So wherever you're sort of finding your cosmic location on your own personal mm-hmm. enlightenment journey, it's just sure. when you find people that are either going to walk it with you or are a bit ahead of you. And I think those of us that are deeply connected to wherever we are on our journey are just wanting to find the people that we can support as they're on their journey. Is that how you hold mm-hmm. it? Indeed. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about object relations, because this is awesome. And um, we've agreed to do three episodes, and today is going to be on attachment, and then we'll get to frustration and rejection, just so people can get a little taster, so that hopefully they'll get as excited as we are about this topic and Mm -hmm. want to dive in and take your class and really learn more. So how would you like to start with attachment, knowing we have like a half an hour to cover a huge topic? So, (laughs) you know, I'm going to kind of pace us and give us, you know, maybe five minutes on just talking about attachment in general. And then personally, I really learn well by like examples and stories about the different Mm -hmm. attachment types. So maybe I can ask some questions or give some reflections and you can either say, 
oh yeah, I think you're thinking about it in the right way and or no, maybe it's this and add whatever comes up for you. How does that sound? That's fine. Awesome. So I, I want to begin with clarifying that in teaching about object relations and the Enneagram, we look at type structures as being predominantly oriented to one of the dominant affects. So attachment is one of the three dominant affects, along with frustration and rejection, as you've said. And there are three type structures that are primarily based on the attachment orientation. I'm always at the beginning wanting to clarify for people that we're not talking about attachment theory, because attachment theory speaks to the level of security a child feels in the reliability and capacity of the caretaker to provide for them. So if we're securely attached, it means that we feel secure in the care we're given. If we're insecurely attached, using the language of anxious or avoidant or disorganized attachment, that means we're not secure. But security and insecurity of attachment has nothing to do with the three types who have a foundation of attachment as a dominant affect. So types three, six, and nine are not more or less securely attached than the other types. And unfortunately, it's one of those overlays of vocabulary that make this sometimes confusing. Yeah, thank you for naming that. And I can't tell you how many times I just go on autopilot talking about an attachment type and somebody that is not as well-versed in the Enneagram thinks I'm talking about attachment theory. And I almost have this deep longing. I don't think like the attachment theory community is going to change the language. And so it almost, I, I mean, and I don't know that the Enneagram community should either. Look, I'm doing an attachment thing right here with trying to find a bridge. <laughs> but right. it's like, I don't know. Is there any other name or word we would give attachment types to just alleviate no. the confusion? No. No, because I think changing names, because the Enneagram is a global model, mm-hmm. We already struggle with the different names different teachers have given to the specific types. Right. Uh, Type three being the motivator, the performer. Right. There are a variety of others. I think changing names in a way becomes more confusing than clarifying. Yeah, and this is happening in the instinct community. You know, um, I'm not judging that Mario has done this. I understand the reasons he has, but now he's calling self-preservation conserving and sexual transmitting and Mm -hmm. social navigating. And yeah, um, you know, I mean, it it depends. It can be confusing, but in the context, if that's what you're taught for the first time, like in a corporate setting, those words might be a lot more helpful. Um, and usable. And so it's not that it's wrong to do it, but it, it, we have to also name that when we go changing language, it can create a more global problem with understanding. Yeah. Mario changed those names in order to have it be more palatable in a corporate environment. 
yeah. um, more understandable, more relevant. But I think what we have to do is to say, if we're talking about attachment, we keep clarifying along the way mm-hmm. the difference between attachment theory and secure attachment and attachment as a dominant affect. So just to be clear that in object relation theory, the personality is built with the child's developing very primitive but developing sense of self in relationship with an other, which originally is perceived as an object. But it's self and other. And the bond between the two is the emotion or the affect. So dominant affect speaks to for any any interaction, which of the primary emotions from an object relation perspective is operating. So attachment, frustration, and rejection are not the language, if we say, how do you feel, we usually get, you know, sad, mad, afraid, confused. So many words, yeah. Yeah. And so dominant affect is specifically named in object relation as attachment, frustration, or rejection. So attachment as an affect simply means that when I, as a developing self or ego interact with you as another i experience our interaction in one of three ways if i experience you through an attachment affect then basically i'm experiencing you as providing me with something that i believe i need or want and I like that you do that, and I want to keep that flow of interaction going. Now, that's for everybody. If I'm looking at my attachment type as my Enneagram structure, then in the grid, I am attached to the nurturing figure. So you and I both with our predilection to our type three structure, are oriented toward finding people and situations, experiences, that give us a sense of being seen, held, nurtured, mirrored. Um, it's, It's a positive nurturing experience. And we love that way too. Like we That's really what love attachment means. Exactly. It's like, you know, right. I'm going to love you the way I'm hoping you will love me. And so as a point three, I often find that I'm giving out to people like what I would also love to be receiving. Do you have that experience? Uh, to some degree, although I think that that's part of our training in the Enneagram world is to recognize that everybody's not like me. Right. And I get in trouble when I believe that's true. Oh, of course. Yeah. I'm and not saying so, it works. I'm just saying when I'm not right. present, that that's what I notice habitually I will do. Yes. Yeah. That we're most unconscious to what is most fundamental in us. Mm-hmm. So it comes naturally to attune to, mm-hmm. to blossom in the field of someone who is giving us what we like. 
But if we were type six and we were, we had an attachment to the protecting figure, then we're more interested in the people and environments that give us a sense of security, safety, clarity, guidance. That's what we're attached to. And that makes so much sense. Yeah. If we're type nine, then what we're attached to is the field of belonging, that I'm part of something. And for nine, it's I have my identity by being part of something or belonging. And I'm attached to that. So the nine tendency sometimes to merge is my identity is blended with what I belong to. And I will suppress my individuality sometimes for the sake of blending in the community. Mm, That makes so so much sense. Attachment will be to one of three figures, nurturing figures, protecting figures, or belonging figures. So we have three, six, and nine. And if we're imagining the Enneagram graphic right now, we see that that's that interior triangle. And three, six, and nine are sometimes called the primary types because we're all connected through the lines and arrows. Well, an attachment is really important too. It makes sense that that's almost a primary object relation because whether you're a frustration type or a rejections type, you're still forming attachments to your parents. It's just like how I'm responding to certain stimuli is different because if as a baby, you know, we know that from research, like babies that are growing up in orphanages where they don't get any type of holding or affection or care, they grow up to be like very messed up individuals. So even if you're identifying as a frustration type or a rejection type, there's still attachment happening in your structure. It's just not what's driving your reactions to the world. Is that right? Well, it's even more fundamental than that because attachment is what serves to build what they call the central ego. So for every type, we build primarily attachments so that we're connecting with the world outside ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's healthy for everybody. And that's another thing that gets a little confusing as we talk about object relations and the Enneagram. Because the so-called attachment types, three, six, and nine, are not the only types that build on attachment. The central ego for absolutely everybody is built on attachment. However, our structure, three, six, and nine, leans toward, builds the structure of the personality on the attachment. And the other six types build the structure on frustration or rejection. Yeah, totally makes sense. So it's not what our, my personal experience. Everybody's personal experience is a lot of attachment, but the structure of our Enneagram types is the object relation pattern and the pattern leans on attachment. And we're going to go into frustration and rejection in a completely different episode, but just for clarity, 
the way that I kind of hold this as what's the difference is we all have attachments, but the way I've come to think about it is, you know, I can just observe, is the stimuli coming in towards me? Am I interpreting this as positive, negative, or neutral? If it's neutral, you know, I might not notice it unless I was wanting a positive experience. And then I Mm -hmm. might try to shift neutral into something I'm enjoying more. But if it's negative, how do I respond to stimuli in the relational field that I don't like? If I'm an attachment Mm -hmm. type, my understanding is that I might flex myself a little more to get what I feel like I'm wanting out of this attachment. If I'm a rejection type, I kind of feel like I might throw up more of a wall and be like, oh, you're not giving me attachment the way I enjoy attachment. I want to block that out. And if I'm a frustration type, I might have the experience of you're not doing attachment with me the way that I enjoy. So I'm going to tell you all the reasons or, you know, I'm just depending on my type, if I'm assertive, withdrawn or dependent, I'm going to sort of be expressing this frustration and there's juice and energy around that. And I'm hearing you go, "Mm," and like not liking how I was framing it, but I just wanted to get the frame out so that now you can deconstruct it. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm perfectly willing to Um, be wrong. Look at how my attachment type, I'll flex to you, Belinda. Tell me why I'm wrong. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think what you're saying muddies the water for a lot of people. Okay. Please tell me why. Because... The first thing is what I was saying before, is as we look at object relations, we first want to look at the pattern or the structure rather than our personal reaction. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Because what you may do, you're an attachment type and you're oriented toward one of three archetypal categories. Uh-huh. So you're oriented toward nurturance. Yep. All right. Now, what you're saying is, what are your strategies if you're not getting nurturance? Mm-hmm. That's a different topic, really. Okay. Now, yes, if we're not getting what we want, we feel frustrated and we pursue it. And if the pursuit is not satisfactory, we reject it and revert to a different approach. Okay. So that's the attachment, frustration, rejection. Okay. We go for it. Mm -hmm. We're not getting it. We pursue it. That's frustration. Frustration pursues what it's not getting. Yeah. And then if we still don't get it, then we perceive the rejection and we reject what we were pursuing and we turn our focus elsewhere. And are you saying threes, sixes, and nines do this? Everybody does this. Oh, everybody does this. Yes. Okay, got that, it. That's, that's the cycle of everybody's attachment, frustration, and rejection. Got it. Thank everybody you. Everybody does helpful. that. Okay. Yeah. Now, do you think that whether you're an attachment type, a frustration type, or a rejection type, you lean on one of these structures? Like, is the order always the same? That's what I heard you say, because Mm. I'm just naming that there are some rejection types 
that haven't enjoyed the way I've been in their relational field and they just like amputate me fast? Did they just get mm-hmm. to the rejection part a lot faster than I would? Or how do you? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So does a rejection type just get through attachment and frustration much more quickly and land in rejection? Like maybe even like in nanoseconds where you barely see the attachment and frustration, they've just rejected. Like that's how I perceive it. If you're not what they want. Right. Right. Yeah. But I meet people that aren't what I want all the time. And I just assume that very few people are actually what I want. I make this joke that I am perfectly happy as long as you do what I want, when I want, Mm -hmm. you know, how I want, you know, like as long as you can meet all these criteria. But that's really the, the soul child. Yeah. That's really the child in all of us that wants what we want when we want it. And yeah. we pout or have a tantrum if we don't get it. Okay. But that's a much more primitive structure. Yeah. It's that someone, I, I'm almost thinking we should delay this part of the conversation until the week we talk about rejection. Yeah, I do too. Because Rejection is really a wonderfully resilient approach to life. And I don't really want to get into that until we've talked through the attachment aspect, because it's why I think we have to systematically go through understanding this matrix. And it's why so many people get so confused about object relations. Right. Because there is the basic pattern of object relations that everybody has. And then there's the Enneagram matrix that says the underlying structure of each of the nine types has a specific pattern of one dominant affect related to one primary other, Mm -hmm. one archetypal other. Mm -hmm. So threes are attached to the nurturing figures. Yep. Sixes are attached to the protecting figures. And we see in six behavior of holding on to sometimes dependency on whatever provides safety, security, protection. Mm -hmm. And with nine, we see how nines will submerge themselves in order to belong to the larger group or family Mm -hmm. in which they find their identity. Yeah. And so personality is more about identity even more than it is about behavior because our behavioral responses arise from our self-identification. Yeah. Well, and the thing I want to highlight too is that as we do our work and as we loosen our reactivity to object relations, when I'm describing attachment types, rejection types, or frustration types, that's when you're locked in the object relation. So it's not to say that all people do these things, but can we find them inside of ourselves? And I think what I was trying to say about attachment types, at least what I've observed in myself and in other threes, sixes, and nines, is that on some level, I just feel, and I mean, frustration types too, it just seems like the rejection types are willing to say no and cut something off and walk away from it sooner. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. It just feels for me like it's really hard to do that. Like the rejection structure is the one that I struggle with the most. Hmm. You struggle with 
that structure as you interact with it in the world? Is that what you mean? Well, or- yeah, I don't like it when people reject me and mm-hmm. I have a hard time playing out rejection. Like I mm-hmm. always project my feelings of being rejected onto another person and I'm very, very hesitant to actually cut off that yeah. relationship or put up the boundary. I notice that once I, you know, and I'm self-pressed dominant, so I actually have boundaries that, you know, I'm a little protective. But yes. um, once I let you in to my self-pressed mm-hmm. boundaries, it's a little scary for me because the way I experience my nurturing object relation attachment side is that I can have a tendency to flex myself and do more than is good for me. And if I can't stay connected to that and have better boundaries with the people I'm, I really deeply care about, mm-hmm. that can make relationships hard. So let's talk about that from an object relations yeah, perspective. Thanks. The difficulty with object relations is that in our earliest lives, we are dependent on the others, mm-hmm. on those archetypal others to meet our needs. Mm-hmm. We're basically helpless when we're infants. And so for all of us, we come to believe that the others in our lives are the source of what we need or want. Right. So for you, as a three, you're attached to whoever seems to provide for you the nurturing, attention, mirroring, yes. all of those aspects. Yes. If you have found someone or something that seems to provide that, yes. our tendency is to activate what do we need to do right. to keep that going. Right. And that's what the other type patterns don't have as much. Attachment means, if that's dominant, it means that we are oriented to and motivated by doing whatever it takes to keep the flow of interaction with the archetypal other, the one you love and receive love from. Just like if you're a six, you'll work hard and be loyal and do all the things you believe you need to do to keep your connection with that authority figure or your institution or whatever, Mm -hmm. that nines will submit as much as, you know, smooth it out as much as necessary to keep that connection. So what you're talking about is you don't want to say no because what drives you is not saying no, but what what more do I need to do to keep this flowing? And when I recognize that I'm not willing to do what is needed to keep it flowing, it's also hard for me to hold your disappointment in my own mm-hmm. choice and boundary and self-care thing. Like that's been right. a growth edge. It's just increasing my capacity for disappointing somebody. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. that's right. Because it can feel like I'm failing you, which is that core three yes. thing. Yeah. And, and at a fundamental level, it's like, uh-oh, if I'm disappointing you, if I'm failing you, then my capacity to keep the flow going with anybody 
might be jeopardized. Absolutely. If, if I can be a failure, if I can be a disappointment, maybe that's who I am. Yeah. Instead yeah. of it's just you. Yeah. That's so, what we get confused yeah. about. Totally. So I want to name that, you know, I was in Russ's class where you showed this like beautiful grid that was incredibly clarifying for my introverted thinking mind. And I just want to name that um, the listeners on this podcast may have a hard time visualizing this grid, but this would be a reason to take your class because you go through this in explicit detail that we're not going to be able to cover in the next 10 minutes. But for people that have a rudimentary like understanding of it, I'm just going to do a refresher Because a lot of the people that listen to this podcast were in that class and have seen you do Mm -hmm. that shtick that you did for us, which was a one-class summary. And what I took away from it that I'll just ping out there, like to say, this is what you'll get more of if you sign up for Belinda's class, is that threes are orienting to the nurturing structure. It's sort of like this thing, I'm picturing like a little baby and my mom's looking up at me and like, let's say I smile. And if she smiles back at me, I'm like, yay, I feel good. Like we're smiling at each other. There's like this energetic exchange. But if mom is distracted and like missed my smile or whatever cute thing I was doing as a baby, because I'm wired as a three, I'm now going to do something else that I'm like, is this going to get mom's attention? And I'll keep kind of flexing until my nurturing figure is noticing me, is smiling Mm. at me. Mm. And then I will make an implicit memory of, oh, I'm going to do more of that because my nervous system loves it when my nurturing figure smiles and is happy with me. Is that a decent representation of how that forms? And then let's go down to say, and then if you're a seven and you have a frustration with the mother figure, then you start to either pursue the good mommy Mm -hmm. that isn't here because bad mommy's here, Mm -hmm. or you keep pursuing something that fills that idealized idea. Right. So it's if your attachment, you keep working at it. If your frustration, you keep pursuing to find a better other. Yep. And you're, if you're an eight, then you go, whoa, mommy hurts me. Mommy rejects me. I'm not going to be anything like mommy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to turn toward the other yep. archetypal other, and I'm going to be more like daddy. Or, yep. you know, we we don't want to get too gender-oriented right. here. But I'm going to be strong, protective, aggressive, yeah. you know. And just to highlight that gender thing you named is that the nurturing figure doesn't have to be a female mother. It's whoever's providing the nurturing feature for right. the baby, just like the protective figure doesn't have to be a male father. It's who's ever playing that role. And the one thing that I found really interesting is that, like, say you're growing up in a single parent household, that parent may be better at providing nurturing or protecting, but they Mm. kind of are doing both for you. That happens Mm. too, right? Yes. And I mean, one, it, it speaks to what a difficult job it is to be a single parent. And often then the child will find the alternative um, archetypal people and situations elsewhere. Yeah. You know, maybe through extended family at school, something else. Like for me, 
you know, my listeners know my kids are 14, almost 17, 18, and 23. And I've actually had three partners live with us for years, you know, Mm -hmm. during their growing up time. And so there hasn't been that stability in their protective figure per se. Mm -hmm. And yet my parents live a half an hour away and my dad was my nanny when I went back to work when they were 12 weeks old and has Mm -hmm. been to every single sporting event and drives them places and is here like five days a week as they've been growing up. So it almost feels like for me that I have no idea one day when my kids are old and in therapy, they can flush this out. But I sort of imagine it like grandpa's maybe their protecting figure because he's an eight and he has that energy as well. And he's here a lot. And depending on your children's primary pattern right what they were born with what their nervous it system matters is. differently mm-hmm. so if you have a child who identifies with type six mm-hmm. the protecting figure is going to be much more important yeah than if you have a child who identifies with five totally makes sense um yeah. So I think that we've kind of flushed that out around threes and sixes. And I just want to be clear on nines that, you know, so for me as a three, it's the nurturing figure, sorry, mom, that like is going to bring up more of my stuff, you know, and I have all Mm -hmm. my object relations around that. So I just love saying that again, because this podcast is hard for my mom to listen to, because it sounds like when I'm just talking about my story as a three and the nurturing figure that I'm like blaming my poor point one mother who really did everything in her power to be a perfect mother. And I just want to mm. name that if you're a three there, or if you're a three, a seven, or what's the other type that eight. attaches to eight, that like your mom could never have done it 100% right for you, no matter what, because we are wired to be very sensitive to what the nurturing figure didn't do for us, even well, though they may just, have done a million yeah. things that are wonderful. Right. We're, right. We're, we have nerve endings that are attuned to nurturing. Let's talk about type nine. Yeah. Because I was taught that the third category was the combination uh-huh. of, the, of both parents or the nurturing and the protecting. But I really think it's more than that. Okay. I think it's the field of the family and home, mm-hmm. whatever it is that creates that sense of home that I belong to, that Mm -hmm. I belong within. And so the nine structure is attached to home. Yeah. And I think it's curious. I know a number of people who identify with nine who consider home to be where they came from before they were born. Mm -hmm. That, um, you know, that line from Wordsworth, trailing clouds of glory, do we come? From so God, are you talking about like the home. ancestors or like give me examples no. of those people? Heaven. Heaven. You know, ah. some people think of it as being heaven. Okay. Um, so I belong to like, like a completely different world. Like my family is not even the concrete family that I can touch and feel and see. It's like I come from this other world. Is that what you're saying? Some yes. people experience it as? Okay. Yes. Interesting. And so some people are even suicidal when they're young. Because mm-hmm. they liked it better before they were born than where they experience themselves now. That's so interesting. Nines, like fours and fives, who are in the so-called withdrawn category and who all orient 
toward this home and belonging. Mm-hmm. For type nine, the it's like looking for where I can feel like I belong and withdrawing into my inner world when the outer places of belonging seem unsatisfying or insufficient. Mm -hmm. So I think about nines have a happy place inside, Mm -hmm. and it is almost a belly center kind of happiness. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the withdrawn types, it is the belly center function that is the least developed. So it's least developed in nine, four, and five. And nine finds that place to belong inside, in my happy place inside. So I can uh, look like I'm showing up in the world, but I might just glaze over. I really want to go to wherever I feel peaceful and calm. And I will subdue my outer expression to not raise waves externally and just find satisfaction internally. Yeah, and I'm so thinking of like the Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home and they yeah. can just go off into like this yellow brick road place inside of themselves because that's right. where home is technicolor as opposed to what they might be experiencing in the actual reality. Right. That attachment to home. Yeah means I'll do whatever it takes to get that feeling yeah. of being home, even mm. if it means withdrawing yeah. from where I am. Yeah. Oh, when you understand these structures, there's just like so much compassion that like opens up inside of my heart. Sure. It's like, of course, we're all doing these things because that's what that deep inner longing is. Like, I kind of feel, I'm as I'm hearing you talk, I'm like, yeah, like, Home is there. That's so funny. The little thing is home is where the heart is. And doesn't that mm. think like a three would say that? Like if mm. my if I have heart connection, like I feel like I'm home because of course mm. I'm wired to look at that nurturing. You know that te- to well, me, like that's what the heart connection isn't actually, but, but that's a flavor of it. But the it's also true though that the heart center for three, seven, and eight is the least developed center. Right. So it's the idea of love yeah. rather than the vulnerability to really experience it. Yeah. Because and if so, you really experience it, it means you would have to undergo heartbreak eventually because yeah. even if the person doesn't leave you, they're going to die. So like ultimately that heart connection, you really have to fortify yourself to be able to live with heartbreak in some ways, yes. if you're a three, a seven, or yes. an eight. Yeah. I believe that these three structures are so assertive as a way of protecting against the vulnerability of the open heart. Yeah. And when I'm doesn't doing... Doesn't mean we can't. Right. Doesn't mean we can't love or have an open heart. But when it comes to really revealing our deepest heart desire, yeah, it's we get a little scared because it's a very vulnerable place. Yeah. Yeah. And so even when I'm doing like resonant healing has been very key for me to connect with the heart center. And when I actually go to a place where I did experience hurt and allow myself to feel all of that emotion and Mm -hmm. grief and rage and disgust and fear, like all that stuff that was really 
hard in that moment that as a three, I know how to just defend my heart, carry on and not really feel it. And I notice that threes, sevens and eights, that when we dip into it, as we're doing healing work, it's really interesting to even look at my own capacity to tolerate all of that intensity before I bounce out with humor or dissociation or something else. And it's like, you just have to go in and out and in and out until you can really like be with it and it fully resolves and or heals. Does that resonate? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Belinda, this was so much fun and I know we could talk forever. Um, I hope Mm -hmm. I can figure out how to be in your class and I hope our listeners can too, but we'll wrap attachment for today. And I look forward to our next time when we can talk about rejection and frustration. Excellent. Thanks so much, Kara. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while SNSMD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.